0: Uh, Let me read our text for us. It's John 21, 1 through 14, 1 through 19. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, That disciple whom Jesus loved, isn't that great, (laughs) said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his hour garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon Johnson, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Uh, At the cross, grace and justice, join and point to mercy's store. Uh, By the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, would you give us the mercy to see you as you are, to hear the words that you have for Peter, to believe that these words for Peter are also for us tonight. Would you give us hearts anew to actually um, love these things, love you as you are presented to us in the scriptures tonight. We need grace to do that. Our hearts are so cold and so feeble. And um, yeah, if left to ourselves, we would not want any of you. But thank you that this is love and the fact that you first loved us. And so uh, help us to do uh, Please do that again tonight. Would you love us again tonight so that we might love you? It's in your name I pray. Amen. So one of my favorite childhood memories, um, I was born in 1992. One of my favorite childhood memories was playing my Nintendo 64 with my buddies, my neighborhood Sandlot crew. Um, we'd stay up till 2, 3 a.m. in the morning playing Super Mario 64. And uh, this game was epic. It's just, we'll leave it at that, it's great. and um, And video games in 1999 weren't what they are today. You can't, you know, kind of save your progress. And so, uh you're playing Super Mario sixty four and like any wrong turn, um some somebody, you know, like throws you something and you take your hand off the controller, uh and you die, right? Like you lose your life. Uh you can't just kind of pick back up where you started. You go back to square one. And uh it made the game really hard, right, and really interesting, um, but also frustrating because sometimes you're like, oh, this is, this is the chance. I'm going to finally beat that level. And then toward the end, right, you do something dumb and, and you're back to square one. How many of y'all feel that way about following Jesus tonight? Like, you were doing great there for a while. You got past all the Koopa Troopas, piranha plants, booze, and Goombas, only to fail late night to like a pornography temptation. And now it's game over, and you're back to square one. Uh, Maybe porn is, like, just something that is, like, not a thing, right? Um, But it's the workaholism and the endless onslaught of busyness that you just haven't been able to, like, let go of, especially this semester. It's the drug that keeps on giving, makes you feel productive and worthwhile, and you just haven't been able to let go of it. Right, you, you woke up last week and you realized, man, I haven't read my Bible all semester. You feel like it's game over on this Christian thing. It's game over at least this semester. Maybe I'll start back at square one next semester. Look, I don't know what it is for you, but I know. I, I know that when failure hits a Michigan student, it's hard. And, the, you know, it's one thing to feel like you failed an exam. It's another thing to feel like you failed a friend. And it's a whole other thing entirely to feel like you failed God. So what do you do? And you guys tell me what, what do you do. I, I think you do one of two things. Either you start back at square one and you tell yourself that this time, this week, this day, it, it's, it's going to be different. I'm not going to fail. Gonna hop back on that treadmill. Or you're so exhausted at the prospect of starting over again that you just kind of give up. You're like, you know, religion, spirituality, Christianity. Just, I, I don't have the space for this right now. This sounds exhausting. And like, depending on your exhaustion level, uh, you might make the extra effort to call yourself an atheist. Um, But I think most of you are just content with like kind of amputating spirituality from your life entirely. And not thinking about it because, right, like that's just one less category that you have to worry about. You got school, you got social, you got to somehow find sleep. You got to like check in with mom and dad. And the last thing you need to kind of worry about is your spiritual life. And so what I want you to see from our text tonight is that Peter, Peter is you. Did you notice which option Peter took? Maybe some context would help. Uh, verse 1 begins with the phrase after this, which harkens us back to the previous chapter where Jesus first appears to the disciples and then specifically to Thomas. Remember the whole like dallying Thomas thing if you're, you grew up in the church? That, that all happened in the previous chapter. Right? So this is now the third time that Jesus appears to the disciples. And what I want you to see is that Peter's shame is so great. The weight of his failure is so great that he's entirely unchanged by the previous two resurrection appearances. Which is, which is, I think, mind-blowing to me because I, I meet with a lot of y'all all the time. And, and something I hear sometimes is, well, you know, if Jesus could just, like, show up and, like, you know, kind of do what he did to Thomas and be like, hey, here... I I went to the cross, I'm real, you know, touch me. Um, Then maybe I I wouldn't be feeling this way, or maybe I'd believe more or something. Um, Peter literally beheld the resurrection of Jesus twice. Twice already. This is the third time. And his shame is so great that that he remains unchanged. Right? I, I, I just mentioned, like, Thomas... Gets this experience and he falls down and he worships Jesus and he says, "My Lord and my God." Thomas is changed, right? And you think Peter, the guy who like speaks up for the disciples, you know, like maybe he would have been affected somehow, but nope. Instead, instead, like, what does Peter do? What does Peter do? Verse three says that he he goes fishing. In other words, he reverts back to to who he formerly was, Simon Johnson, Simon the fisherman. He no longer is Peter. He's, He's no longer the rock, the fisher of men. It has been and still is game over for Peter. And after, you know, investing three whole years of his life following Jesus, he's just too exhausted to start over and just do better. He's like many of you and just amputates any kind of construct of his own spiritual journey to return to just feel like what feels like the easiest option. It just it just gets back to work. Even if it lets him down, you know, like we see in verse 3 when they're up all night and they catch nothing. Like at least he can kind of expect that alfish. At least you can kind of expect that out of school, right? It just kind of stinks. (laughs) Fishing's fishing's predictable unpredictability is a comfort in comparison to the unpredictability and surprise of his own heart. And he'd rather do anything, anything at all, than think about that. So enter Jesus, verse 4. Jesus loves Peter too much to let him wallow in his own failure and shame. Jesus loves Peter too much for Peter to settle for, for an amputated life apart from him. Jesus loves Peter too much to not restore him to his God-given identity as the rock. And So friends, what I want you to see tonight is that Jesus' presence and Jesus' words They actually do something that the previous two resurrection appearances didn't do for Peter. Jesus' presence and Jesus' words personalize. They personalize what just happened on the cross. They personalize it for Peter. Jesus takes the time and he connects the dots for Peter. And so that's what we're going to do this evening. Uh, Those are my my two points. Jesus' presence and Jesus' words. So like I said, like John 21 it's my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. And I think it's my favorite chapter in the entire Bible because of verses 4 through 8. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to reread them. But I do want to highlight for you a couple of details in these verses. They're right up there. The first detail I want to draw your attention to is the familiar scene of, of initially not catching any fish. And then Jesus telling them to put their nets on the other side. And then the disciples catching an abundant amount of fish, uh, which is kind of amazing. Uh, John, at the end of the chapter, is going to say, and I'm, I'm writing these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. And one of the things about John when you read his gospel is that he's got all these kind of asides that hint to his eyewitness testimony. That hint to the fact that like he was actually there. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not conceited at all. <laughs> um, and what I love is that John is saying, yeah, there was such an abundant amount of fish that were caught right here. There was 153 of them. We counted them. It's not like, hey, there was like maybe 100. It's 153. This harkens us back to the second week of the semester, if you guys have been with us. All all semester, if you haven't, uh, Luke 5. There's this familiar scene, literally the same scene. Does anybody remember Peter's response then? Kind of surprising, right? Peter realizes his own sinfulness in the presence of Jesus' power and holiness. It terrifies him. Terrifies him so much that he cries out, uh, Depart from me, Lord. For I am a, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. He wants nothing to do with Jesus. And Jesus gently responds to Peter three years ago by saying, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid from now on. You will be catching men. Right? We never hear a follow-up about how Peter received Jesus' words back then. But you have to imagine that, that he believed them at least enough to follow Jesus into you know, whatever they were doing next. Okay, so now zoom back to the text tonight and three years later. Peter thought that he was catching men. Peter thought he was following Jesus and doing all the right things. And then Jesus wasn't who he thought. Peter wasn't who he thought. The miraculous catch in verse 6, it, it does two things. First thing it does, it, it identifies the man on the, G, on the beach as Jesus. Right, they, don't know, they don't know who this guy is at first. They catch all these fish. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, is the Lord. Jesus' MO and God's MO is always providing for his people in abundance. Uh, We we live our lives in an economy of scarcity, but God's economy is always an economy of abundance. So that's the first thing. But second thing, and and more importantly, what verse 6 and the the miraculous catch of fish does actually triggers Peter triggers his shame and that's ultimately why he does what he does in verse seven and and confession time real quick oh it's about to get juicy um no every time i've read this this text until yesterday until yesterday um i just assumed that peter threw on his his outer garment and threw himself into the water to swim to Jesus because he was just so excited to see Jesus. You know, like this is the puppy dog Peter who just gets excited and says things without thinking and does things without thinking. But did you read anything in the text that said he got to land before the other disciples? Right? Like I'm thinking verse eight. Like there's nothing in there that says he got to land before the the other disciples. And remember our context, right? Like, this is a man who just denied Jesus three times last week. He's a deeply shamed man. He, he, three separate occasions, and now you have this resurrected king of glory who we just sang about. Right? Things didn't end well with Jesus and Peter, you could say. And so if that's the case, then why would Peter enthusiastically jump into the water and swim the shore to be with Jesus? Because he's excited to be with him? Oh, that sounds like ox sauce. Sounds so... Is that that's a phrase? No, ox sauce. Sauce of awkward. Okay. Um, right? No, I don't think that's the case at all here. I just made that up. Y'all can quote me. Um, super cool pastor, dude. Um, verse 7 says that he's stripped for work. I, like, the Greek is a little ambiguous here um, on what picture that's actually painting. Like, either he's completely naked or probably more likely stripped down to his underwear. And so it's when he hears that it's the Lord that he then covers himself up and he throws himself into the sea. Here's what I think is happening. I think Peter is so deeply shamed that he tries to hide from Jesus. Jesus. He's doing what you and me do when we don't want to be found. We get busy with work. We get busy. And it's there that Jesus, he comes and he finds him. You can almost feel the pit in Peter's stomach. There's nowhere he can kind of get away and hide now. So he does something that honestly just... feels ridiculous when I read it. He puts on his clothes and he jumps in the water. Because like nakedness in the Bible is so often associated with shame. He needs to cover his shame. And then maybe if I just throw myself in the water he won't see me on the boat. It's really ridiculous. But verses 9 to 14 um, they go on. Now they're eating breakfast. And and it doesn't say, like, where Peter's sitting at breakfast, right? It says that Peter went aboard and he hauled the net ashore full of large, large fish. It doesn't say exactly where Peter's sitting, kind of among the crew, in relation to Jesus. But I just want to imagine, I just want to imagine that he's probably off by himself somewhere. As the disciples head for the shore, he realized that he had to come along too. But as you can imagine, like, this is awkward for him. Not oxos. Awkward. He, he doesn't know what to say or do. I think in a very like literal sense, he's forced into Jesus' presence when every fiber of his being doesn't want to be there. And again, maybe that's you tonight. Maybe every fiber of your being doesn't want to be here and would actually rather be at the basketball game right now. But here you are, forced to sit with Jesus. But Peter's, he's not just sitting there, is he? They're eating breakfast. Jesus is cooking breakfast for him. Gosh, and there's so many things to know about this action by Jesus. I just, I love that he's cooking breakfast for Peter. Here's the first thing I want you to know Jesus, he's got a high view of food. It's honestly one of the reasons why I love to take you guys to lunch. Um, I actually think there's something theological that's being communicated um, when I buy you a meal. It's that Jesus has a high view of food. Uh, It's where he shares life with people. And we we saw that a couple weeks ago at the Passover meal. We see that in John 6 when he says that he is the bread of life. But this is this isn't just a thing that's like unique to Jesus. Biblical language and imagery is consistently centered around food. From the garden of Eden and the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil all the way to the very last day when God's people are wedded to King Jesus and they feast together at the wedding supper of the lamb, the Bible all the time talks about food. And maybe you're wondering why Here's why. Food, in a very clear and distinct way, unlike most anything else, honestly, displays what our relationship with God is like. We are in need of sustenance. And He's faithful and kind, not just to provide the food, not just to cook the food, but he ultimately is the food that our souls crave. And so what's it like, friends, what's it like to, to wake up, put on a hoodie, come downstairs, smell coffee, hear the sound of bacon sizzling? Maybe, maybe for some of y'all, but it's not great. But, but you look up to the smile of Jesus telling you that you can sit down and he can take care of you. And please don't miss that his presence, in the first fourteen verses, his presence is not disconnected from the meal; they're inherently interwoven. They are one and the same. And right, that's why it's not enough to just like show up to church on Sunday mornings and hear the Bible preached, but we need to eat the Word as it is given to us in the Lord's Supper. Jesus knows that you literally need to, you need to taste his presence. There's a, there's a physicality to it. Everything about Christianity is a physical faith. Because God created the world, the physical world, and he said it is good. I think all too often the church is kind of obsessed with being like a spiritual, kind of nebulous, brain on a stick. That's just pie in the sky. Like Jesus knows we need to taste his physical presence with us. Because if you don't, right? Like you're going to remain seated off in the corner all by yourself so stuffed up with the shame that you can't smell or taste the feast that he is he has made for you. It's like having a cold. You can't smell it, you can't taste it. It's just kind of I uh, I know that's sometimes how I feel about Jesus. Nah. Right, his presence ministers to our shame-filled stories, uh, but that's not all, right? Like Jesus's words to Peter and to you and me in verses 15 through 19 intend not just to pursue us in our shame, but they ultimately intend to get us back in the game. So let's look at these words, these words of Jesus, and this is my last point. Uh, if you've ever heard this text preached before, I, I think uh, one thing pastors usually like to do and kind of point out uh, the dialogue that is happening here in these four verses is they go, well, Jesus is using a different word for love than what um, Peter is using. Jesus is using the word agapeo, and Peter's using the word phileo. And they're like, okay, one's higher than the other. I, I think that's over-exaggerated. I don't think that's kind of what's going on here. And that's true because the word that Peter uses for love is the same word that Jesus uses to describe the Father's love for him in John 5. I think the difference in Greek words for love is is supposed to, is supposed to capture the varying tone in their conversation. After all, like, they're not talking in Greek. They're talking in Aramaic. <laughs> right? Like, this is John's account to describe to us what happened after the fact. And John's trying to get you to feel the conversation, to feel the dialogue, to, to feel the, the tone. And so, so what was their varying tone? I, I think from Jesus' end, it was that of a shepherd bending down on one knee to, to mend back together the leg of a, of a wounded sheep. And from Peter, I think we hear a whimper of a man that doesn't know what to say in response to Jesus. You know that I love you. And right off the cuff, um, I think if you're reading this maybe for the first time, you might think, man, is Jesus just trying to like shame Peter even more? Like you just denied him three times? Is this just like Jesus's passive aggressive way of being like, do you love me? You know, kind of like a manipulative girlfriend or something. Like, do do you actually love me? You know? Um. But I think there's something actually like more profound taking place within the details. Verse 9 mentions that this whole breakfast is is taking place beside a charcoal fire. That means like the entire time they're eating fish on the beach, Peter is taking in... The same aroma, the same smell, the same sight of when he denied Jesus three times by a charcoal fire. And so, honestly, with this context in mind, like this dialogue kind of feels like scripted on some level. What is Jesus trying to do by surrounding Peter with the same sights, sounds, and smells of the worst night of his life? Jesus wants Peter to know one thing in this conversation. His identity as the rock was never based on the strength of his faith. And repeat that one more time. Peter's identity as the rock was never based on the strength of his faith. Peter's faith had, had failed him more times than either he or Jesus could count. I mean, that's basically been the life of Peter, guys. <laughs> if you've missed all semester your first time here, Peter's failed every week to some degree. His faith has failed him more times than he can count. He was not the rock because he had a strong faith, or because he lived faithfully. Peter was the rock because Peter loved Jesus. Peter's misguided and half-hearted love for Jesus I mean isn't it peter's love for jesus that actually like spirals him into hopelessness in the first place doesn't peter's shame arise out of a sense that he should have done better for jesus peter wants more than anything to love the jesus who looked at him three years ago and said you are the rock you are Simon, but you will be Cephas. You will be the rock. And Peter wants more than anything to be that rock for Jesus. So badly. I wonder how many of you are here tonight and your faith is non-existent. Maybe if it's there, it's, it's pretty feeble. Most days you don't even really kind of know what to believe. And it's because your faith has failed you that any idea you have for the Christian life and, and following Jesus has kind of just been shriveled up in the dry spiritual climate of college. But you love the Jesus you see in the scriptures. You may not read your Bible, go to church, pray, whatever, all the spiritual things. But you're enamored by Jesus. It's your fascination for Jesus that that keeps you coming back week after week. If you can relate to this at all, how do you respond to Jesus right now? He said, do you love me? His words aren't intended to highlight how much you, you don't love him like you should, but rather they are meant to bring out the desire of your heart to love him with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Do you love me? These questions restored Peter back to being the rock. Jesus puts him back in the game. He saves his progress, you could say. Not because he had strong faith. Not even because he had perfect love. But because the experience Peter has right now with Jesus in this moment is all that he needs to confess. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love him. It's only after Peter is restored as the rock that Jesus then puts him to work. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. The great shepherd of Peter's soul sets him free to actually become like Jesus. Peter is set free to himself become a shepherd who tends to the, to the needs of other sheep like himself. Peter is set free to actually love his neighbor as himself, you could say. And so if you can answer Jesus' question tonight, yes, Lord, we you know that I love you, then Jesus' call to you is, on the one hand, the exact same as Peter's. You are called the shepherd or like literally pastor. That's what that word means. The sheep among you. You are broadly called the care, move toward and tend to the needs of the people that God has put in your life. It's not random, the people that are in your classes. It's not random, the people you live with. It's not random, the people you're going to run into in the union tonight. If we believe in a sovereign God who has sovereignly administered your life, And you've been set free to tend and to feed the sheep in your midst. You're called to move toward the needs of those people that God has put in your life. But on the other hand, Peter's call to tend the sheep is is a commissioning from Jesus to him specifically to become an overseer or a vocational shepherd for the people that belong to Jesus Uh, Put simply, he is commissioned as an elder in the church of Jesus Christ. So in that sense, you tonight also have the more narrow call as sheep to let shepherds that God has put over you to actually care for you. In other words, Jesus' restoration of Peter is actually a charge to let people like Peter shepherd you. It's a charge to become a member of a church. Because Jesus believes you need it. I think it's actually these four verses that Peter had in mind when he wrote 1 Peter 5, 1-5. through That's what he writes. He says, he's writing to what many believe to be the church in Rome. And he writes, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder, He writes, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So Jesus restores you first by his presence and then by his words. He puts you back in the game so that you might have the capacity to love the people God has put in your midst. And then he gives you the church and shepherds and hermits to minister to you. When your failure and shame again tried to take you away from King Jesus. This is because with Jesus, there's no game over. Let's pray.